Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Hi, welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. Today I am with Haven Pell and we're starting a new segment basically where Haven and I will be discussing a topic, in this case colleges. Haven can be found on the Pundificator, which is his online presence both by blog and podcast and other sources of media. Haven, welcome aboard. Thanks very much, Fraser. Glad to be here. Before we get started on the topic of colleges, which I think can lead us in a lot of different directions, maybe just give a quick little background for our listeners. And as people start to understand what we're talking about and beginning our segment and getting some regularity to it, we'll be able to know each other even better. Thank you. So I'm on what I call Haven 6.0. And the first version after graduating from Harvard in 1968 was to be a Navy officer because I had a very low draft number and we had a nasty war going on. So from there, I went to law school. Then I became a lawyer for about 15 years, had half a dozen years as a boutique investment banker working between Japan and the United States, a very short stint running a foundation and family office, not a job that I loved, and then a 17-year stint at Sanford Bernstein, which was in the investment management world. And I retired from that in 2011 and began writing a political blog called Liberty Pell. And now I have evolved into pundificator.com, which I think of as less politics, more everything else. Suffice to say, for both of us, we're both in the wealth management or keeping rich people rich types of industries or have been. And so that's where we're flying off from as we go to talk about different topics here. To that end, we were both discussing ahead of time something that is germane to just about everybody and is in the midst of a lot of controversy now, and that's really the word colleges and where they fit in today's society for the U.S. and a lot of different components that have led to a lot of different thinking around it. From your perspective, I know you just had a dinner on the topic with a variety of people. What did you learn from that? We had a dinner in Washington, and because I committed to, I organized the dinner and I committed to people that this was a conversation within the room. Please forgive me for not using names. But we had about a dozen people, men and women, generally of a demographic that was past putting their children through college. Pretty thoughtful group of people. And we had with us also a former college president. And his mission was to sort of keep us on track, probably keep us from saying things like kids these days and things that I don't think They don't make you more thoughtful if you're just going to reactions. So it was quite a wide-ranging discussion because the title was simply college. It could go anywhere. The place that it went was the insiders versus the outsiders. And the critics, generally the outsiders, and he was doing, I thought, a lot of defending. One of the areas that I kind of talk about with a lot of people, I'm in from a weird spot. I'm probably the last person to graduate from college without an email address. So this is going back to 1995. I was not exactly fashion forward with computers, although I worked with them and understood them, but it just hadn't quite hit yet. And I get a lot of people who ask me my advice on colleges, not just from a quality and what do I do and how do I study and what's the best one for me, but how does that relate to expense? Is it worth it to go to a private institution anymore? Should I be going to a state institution? 
And I struggle to be relevant in that conversation because I feel like I'm such a dinosaur on that front, not least of which the cost is such a major percentage of what people pay into it now from their current incomes and the debt load that kids are coming out of the space on that front is just so enormous. And either I was shielded from it, very possible, or I just didn't really understand what was going on. Double that with the fact that the job environment, walking out of college now with the debt load, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Where do you come out on that front? Well, to go back to the dinner for just a second, I think one of the most interesting things we all heard are sort of the college president said, do you know how they do college in Singapore? And of course, none of us had the slightest idea how they do college in Singapore. We never had no idea about that. He said, well, the girls go at 18 and the boys aren't allowed to go till they're 20. And there were knowing glances, especially from the women at the dinner, realizing that Young women mature much more quickly than young men. And I think that that really leads into what you're saying in that, boy, you have to make sure that you are extracting every drop of good for what you're paying at college. One thing is to ask yourself a question now, if you're a parent, is my 18-year-old ready for this? And if not, don't waste your money getting him ready, let him do something else. Let him do something else from ages 19 and 20, and then be more ready to go and get enough out of it. From my experience, I would have definitely benefited from what I think most people would describe as a gap year. Now, a gap year where you're gallivanting around Europe and sipping coffee in Iceland or doing something like that wouldn't have helped me very much. I probably would have benefited from a year of digging ditches or the rough equivalent and really understanding the value and power of work. But at the same time, I'm not even sure that would have solved lots of problems. I mean, I ended up going to a lot of nice institutions and got a great education and hopefully turned out all right. But many times, to me, a lot of people, they don't get the benefit of what I call the Wayne Gretzky effect, where you find out you're a prodigy in something you love at age eight, and you're able to design your life around that. I don't know where the world comes to, or at least the United States comes to, is the pressure to produce and be economically viable on your own is getting much more severe much earlier than I seem to recall. Where do you sit on that? Well, our consensus at the dinner is that the education that you can get in college, if you focus on it, is unparalleled. There is no place else on earth. You look at the top 10 or 20 or 30 colleges in the world, and the vast majority of them are here in the United States. It's something that we do well because we do it so differently. There's so many different models. There's no one specific model. In Germany, it's all done a certain way. In France, it's all done a certain way. There's very little innovation. In the United States, there are any number of different ways to do college. You can do community college, you can division three college, you can do a big university, you can do private, public, and they all will end up providing different things at different price points. But there was a long, long time where people didn't think that you really had to think very much about the cost of college. I remember my father saying that the cost of college has always been the same. It costs the same as a Chevrolet. And in 1930, 40, 50, 60, 70, that was probably true. Now it costs the same as two or three Chevrolets. And obviously you have to think about it and you have to ask, the parents and children have to come to an understanding 
of this is a big commitment. Are you really ready to get something out of it? That makes total sense. It feels like that inflation is not anything holding back college tuitions anymore. And and I get back to something I was talking about, the job environment that one is walking into coming out of college is a much more difficult world to make those numbers balance out simply on the numbers basis. And I don't know how to quite deal with that with people who ask me for my advice because it's tough to tell someone that go be a nurse, go be a investment banker, mechanical engineer. To me, there's a lot of value. Maybe this is more of a liberal arts education component where those formative years are spent learning how to think and write and acquire a certain set of skills that can be usable in the economy. And to be so pre-programmed so early just feels very alien to me, at least in this country. The thing that we had the hardest time trying to get to agreement on was really what are the components of the cost of college? There seemed to be a lot of dodging about. Obviously, universities provide a lot of things and they do extraordinarily important research that is too little noticed and so forth. But is all of that cost being factored in to what is charged for undergraduate tuition? If so, it probably shouldn't be. In other words, are undergraduates subsidizing other parts of the university? And that would be a huge component. If I were, I've thought about this a number of times, if I were the CFO of a college, the way I would think about pricing is what could I get? And I am supposed to bring as much money into the university as I possibly can. How much can I possibly charge? And it depends probably on your college rankings and so forth. But I'm not persuaded that the cost of college is driven by the cost of providing the service. Well, I think you're probably right. I think there's in the discovery that certain places can charge premiums, other places that aren't as well endowed or have sort of a backstop built up. They really are trying to fund that year's operating expenses through tuitions. And that gets back to maybe a different component that I'm sure comes up in your discussions. And it's certainly come up around where I am, which is in a sort of depending on which college you go to, is it worth it? And if you can't track back to what you're describing as to what the tuition is actually paying for, then at the end of the day, you really are looking at a list of rankings and saying, okay, well, I'm paying for something that signals to the environment outside of my household that I'm worth something and that I have third-party credibility that I can be additive to the either to the economy or to whatever other components important to you. There's no question that there's a credentialing aspect to this that is probably deserving of a lot more thought. The colleges are all accredited by various accrediting bodies. They have certain rules of what you have to have that essentially make everybody behave the same. It becomes very difficult to have to do online education. You might not get accredited if you're simply using the economics course from some other professor who isn't yours. It's a process that tends to favor the insiders. But it seems to me that the most important part is to have a pretty clear understanding with your child. I'm assuming we're mostly talking about parents here who are trying to think about how to do this. But have an understanding with your child that this is a very, very big expense and that they really need to consider how they're going to get the most out of it. And then you get into a conflict with the parents who are delighted to say, 
my little Johnny is at fill in the name of the fancy college and plaster that over the back of the SUV. That's a very expensive sticker. I mean, if the kid isn't ready to go to Yale and you just want a Yale SUV sticker, that's a heck of a price. They might be better off if they waited until they were 20 or were more ready to deal with it after having had some other demanding experience. Well, and it's had a really interesting sort of parallel effect because as the numbers and competitiveness of college admissions have skyrocketed along with the tuitions and the pressure and some of the things we're describing, it's changed the way people are structuring kids' educations leading up to college. When you talk about a lot of different credentializing, whether it's making sure you have enough AP courses, trying to be on the student newspaper or class president, speaking Mandarin, playing tennis, add second violin in the concerto and all that type of thing. It's created a massive sort of storm of pressure, not just at fancy places, whether you're in New York City or New England, but even in the public school for those people who who are trying to compete against the rest of the world to get into not only the top colleges, but even the colleges that are good and provide good educations, but maybe not have been traditionally thought of as top and elite. It's an interesting environment now. And you, you just look back at the bribery scandal where people are willing to pay upward at nearly $500,000 to get into USC, very good institution. But if you were to tell someone that 10 years ago, they'd look at you cross-eyed and say, what is going on here? Isn't there a better way to skin this cat? Well, as it happens, I was at USC about a week ago for a day and I wandered around. A friend of mine had gone there and was very loyal to it and arranged for me to be able to stay in the USC hotel, which I enjoyed very much. And I was very impressed with USC. It is a very beautiful place. And it does raise the question to go back to our anonymous CEO or our fictional CEO. If the CFO at USC wanted to charge a certain number of people $10 million for their kid, you could sell a few tickets for that. And probably you'd sell a fairly good chunk of tickets for a million dollars. And then you could scale it down and you'd have your budget problem pretty much solved. But essentially, they can accomplish that in a little bit different way that doesn't sound nearly as disgraceful as that would sound. And that is to say, OK, we have a retail price and we determine which students pay that, and we get to sort of reverse tax it. And you can create a whole progressive, or in this case, regressive cost structure so that you can bring in people for free and you have people that are paying $75,000 and it all sort of evens out. He pushed back a good deal on the idea that a full pay student is subsidizing a scholarship student. There was a lot of pushback that I don't think was totally accepted. It seems to me growing up, there were examples of people who were able to get into places that maybe purely on SAT scores and grade point averages that they would not be able to get into via the donation or name on the building or that type of thing. And it sounds a little bit about like what you're describing, but maybe in a bit more of an official capacity, i.e. removing the hypocrisy from that kind of scenario. I look at that and I say, well, colleges are supposed to be meritocracies or there should be some general gesture towards that. Where do you think that fits? A pretty cynical approach to the Varsity Blues scandal is it's not the bribes that were wrong. It is who was getting them. And as long as the colleges were getting the bribes, in other words, buildings, huge donations, whatever, 
then everybody was perfectly fine with it. But as soon as people who were not on the inside were getting the bribes, then it wasn't okay anymore. And I accept the fact that that's a pretty cynical view, but it may not be wholly wrong. I look at that and I say, geez, you know, there's something just, I don't know if morally wrong is the right word, but there's something inherently uncomfortable about that. But if a cottage industry was sort of mushrooming up around that such that you're right, the money was not going to the institutions themselves. It was going to a bunch of nefarious characters and even more badly put people who were sort of perpetuating frauds on these institutions in order to get people in. That's ugly and has to be shut down. But it's a tough one. These colleges need to survive. And look back at places like Sweetbriar, Hampshire is another one. And these are places that are struggling to survive, and they really speak to that level of experimentation that you were talking to. There's different places for different people, but without that lifeblood of money, that just doesn't work. And these are places that, aside from selling an education and credentialism, in many ways, they're selling sort of posterity and a community to be a part of that stretches beyond college. I have a lot of sympathy for those folks, and if you can charge more to get people in there, that holds weight with me. In terms of something that deserves perpetuation, first of all, we do higher education very well as compared to the rest of the world. And people want to come from anywhere. I mean, there you could fill Stanford with students from China. There could be no Americans at all. There would be plenty to go around and they'd all be full pay. And so the research piece of it seems to me to get too little play. And our college president the other night held up an iPhone and he said, there are nine major components in this iPhone and Apple created none of them. Apple packaged them, but they were all created. All the significant components were created at various research universities. And we want that. That's really a good thing. And if it isn't sufficiently funded by the government, which one hopes that it would be, that seems like a very good use of government is to fund basic research that doesn't yet have economic viability to attract private capital. So that seems like a really good thing to do. We want to push the accelerator down on that one. And if to some degree there is a subsidy that is provided by freshmen and sophomores and juniors who may not be have anything to do with any of that research, that's probably a good thing to, I mean, that's probably okay. The difficult thing is as you get out, I mean, you've got to, you take on all this debt, you have to come up with a, a plan. I mean, you, if you wanted to fund your organization, you would have to come up with a plan for how you're going to pay it back. But there are certain kinds of jobs that are very traditionally popular among college faculties that you can't do. You can't come out with a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and plan to be a poet. It just isn't going to work. And the educators get frustrated that so many people go into finance or to technology. The demand for software engineers is absolutely through the roof. I mean, the debt doesn't matter to a software engineer because they're going to get hired at a rate that is going to enable them to pay it back. It is very difficult for a person who wants to go into the home healthcare industry. So as we sort of think about this, and it brings up something that I alluded to a little bit before, which is whether the liberal arts education, it's something that I think you pro you and I probably grew up, it was espoused, at least it was espoused in my household, is something where you're learning to write, you're learning to think, you're getting a broad view. It's always been my supposition that those skills continue to be useful, but the 
the economics behind what lands beyond that really is focused on finance. And now there's, in many ways, a real competition between the STEM arts and engineering and coding, et cetera, that I think is sort of casting a lot of maybe doubt around the liberal arts model. What do you think about that? I think your point's well taken. The things that you learn in your history classes and your and your English classes, and by those, I have a caveat that those would be real history classes and real English classes. And I would get myself in a huge amount of trouble with some of the more liberal faculty members. I mean, it is very useful to understand the what I would view as the traditional curriculum and probably at least less recognized to try to get much out of a curriculum that is more politically oriented. One of the things that I suppose can happen, I mean, I have a personal experience with this one, is you have a person who's an English major and is doing just what you are describing, also an athlete, and finds themselves being recruited all over Wall Street. Why? Well, it's certainly not because the student knows a stock from a bond. It's because they know how to be on teams and how to compete. And so you can go ahead and learn how to think and read and write and so forth, and then excel in a varsity sport. And you will discover that there are people at well-known Wall Street firms that would absolutely love to have you on their training desk because those are skills that they want. One of the crazy things that I see too with younger folks is that ability to communicate, that ability to work with people and persist in difficult environments. That's becoming less and less apparent. The communication component, whether you're communicating by emoji or acronym or otherwise you're not willing to pay your dues within an organization and be patient with criticism and take that for what it is, that's something that seems to be drying up, if not necessarily in the curriculum, then at least in the academic experience. I look at that and say, we're losing something on that front. And bringing up something we were talking about before with a friend of mine named Scott Johnston, who came out with a book called Campus Land, which is a biting satire of campus environments in general, whether it's protests led by people who are dislocated from the causes they represent to sort of procedural craziness as it relates to sort of academic forums and sort of the interaction of social media and what's important to young people within a campus environment. It's an interesting book. I encourage people to check it out. It underscores a lot of what's happening. You see issues where you have a professor who's essentially booed out of class at Evergreen State. And frankly, from a political standpoint, he's not that far off from the general tone of the campus. You see sort of the craziness at Oberlin. You see all sorts of just sort of lack of compatibility or even ability to hold simultaneous thoughts in one head over particular issues. And I look at that and say, okay, so a lot of people are going to college for the right reasons. Maybe they've thought about it a certain way, but the culture of these campuses is such that there is something going on that I think is either so one-sided as to be sort of creating a cognitive distortion amongst the students, or the students are arriving in such a way that they're not being taught or don't have the skills to be able to think critically. Did your college president have any thoughts on that? As incredibly selective as some of the top ones are, where they're taking one person out of 25, generally they are academically pretty qualified to be where they are. Whether they're developmentally prepared to be where they are might be a slightly different question. And there is a certain amount of idea that 
you get an 18 year old who has never heard anything other than praise. You're the best and all the kind of parenting, which is certainly different from what I experienced, although I wouldn't necessarily offer mine up as a way to do things. Being criticized and being told, hey, that wasn't very good is very positive. And you better hear it sometime early on because you are certainly going to hear it when you go to work. And that becomes a really big problem when you have people who who simply have never been told that their effort wasn't the best that anybody had ever done, whether it's the schools that are always praising people or the parents that are always praising people. It might be a little better to introduce a harder reality at an earlier stage. I do think that kids are perfectly able to deal with that. And many of us were criticized and we're all still here. Yeah, no question about that either. I, again, it goes back to my experience. I would have definitely benefited from a year of digging ditches or being in a real hard work situation just to sort of understand what life's about. And it would have equipped me with a little bit better appreciation for the opportunity I had. I went to a really nice college and I went to Duke, but coming off of that, I had some good lessons to learn as it related to being in the workforce. And then it equipped me well to go into law school three years after that. And I was able to really take from that experience a lot more than I probably did it in college, which you know, which is a regret of mine, but you do the best you can with what you've got. So to look at that and say anything that helps on that front, I think equips people even better when they enter the workforce, when they start a family, when they take positions of responsibility. There's something missing on campus, it feels like anyway, as it relates to that. Well, there was one place where we got totally universal agreement between the insiders and the outsiders at the dinner the other night was on the idea that we have really lost something with no national service. And everybody falls all over themselves very quickly to say, it doesn't have to be military, it could be something else, but something that causes people to exit their zip code and see people from other zip codes and to if you choose to enlist in the Army or the Navy or the any other service, or if you choose to do some similar type of collective effort, disciplined project, whether it's working in the National Forest Service or something that will put you on a team with people who are very different from you and make you work hard. And to do that for a period of time before moving into this very expensive, concentrated four-year period where a lot of money is going to be spent and you better get a lot out of it because you're going to have to pay the money back. So we all agreed that that would be a wonderful idea and possibly very good for the country as well to get people to have a better understanding of each other than we presently do. All right. Well, you've got another proponent there. I completely agree with that. I also like the idea that it forces people to revolve around a certain set of values, whether they're American ideals or other ones, but something where there's some universal understanding and general agreement as to the goals you're trying to achieve. And again, something like that, if I'd taken two years and gone in the army, I bet that would have been a very good thing for my development. And can't go back now and I'm too old and crippled to uh, <laughs> to be parachuting out of planes or anything like that. But your point's really well taken on that front. I like the idea of national service, whether it's military or otherwise. I think that would there'd be a lot of good benefits there. 
It's an interesting thing, and I'm not sure how you would try to get it going, but it's always very easy to say, this would be a wonderful thing for other people to do. And so being older, I look at that and I say, well, wait a minute, Haven, check yourself. It's all well and good to say these other people should be doing something that I will never have to do. I would be very curious about whether there would be a way to integrate people who were retired, but certainly able to do any number of things. They have a lot of experience. They have a presumably a reasonable amount of wisdom and they are active and they will derive a great deal from being with young people. What if there was a way to create a vehicle for older people who are in their 6.0 phase to be a part of that younger people national service type of opportunity, really? Maybe think of it as an opportunity, not a requirement. If there were something that combined that and had people doing useful things, Lord knows there are plenty of useful things that need to be done. And working together and blending zip codes and blending older people and younger people. And then off they go, the younger ones go off after two or three years or whatever, and then they go to college and then they're suddenly all fired up to really get something out of it. And they have a better sense of what they want to do. And and especially the boys are a little bit more mature. And though I do think that this would be a very helpful thing for everybody. That's a terrific idea. And it's something that I've thought about a lot and sort of demographically speaking for people who are sort of going into the version of their lives 6.0, but from an age perspective, sort of age 60 and beyond, we're all living longer. And that gap maybe between 60 and let's say 79, where there's so much talent and ability that I think this country is just being so cavalier and casting aside. I think the idea of creating a national service component, voluntary for them, of course, but where their experience and wisdom can be dropped down to younger people as they enter society, I think there's a lot to that. And you talk about sort of mixing up zip codes and getting people with different backgrounds. Age is a big part of that. I think there is a real disconnect between the different generations in this country as it relates to shared experiences. And there's a meme out there now called OK Boomer, millennials versus boomers and things like that. It's codified just in that part. It's like having two people in a knife fight and you watch the Gen Xers uh, sort of looking around laughing because they think they're above all of it. But at the same time, There's so much wisdom that's just being lost, and I think it can go beyond people who are going to be greeters at Walmart. There's so much more that people can be doing besides retiring and playing golf or being a greeter at Walmart if you need that economically or otherwise. There's an entrepreneurial idea, a $10 billion idea in there somewhere. I've often thought of it as a government program, and as I listen to you, I begin to think that maybe this is more of a Wendy Kopp program. Wendy Kopp was the woman who, the Princeton person who created Teach for America. And that has been, I think, it appears to have been a brilliant success. And if there was a Wendy Kopp idea that would blend a person like me, I'm 73 years old, I'm pretty fit, I can put on work boots, and I could guide some people to accomplish something that could be could be useful. I mean, maybe we clean out a stream or maybe we clean up trails in a park and leave the campsite better than we saw it. And if I had a dozen people 
from a variety of backgrounds, I'm guessing I could probably turn them into a pretty decent team. And if there were for some people who I think there was an awful statistic that I was reading in the paper yesterday or today, that there is a pretty alarming percentage of people who are kind of nearing retirement who have literally zero in their IRA and 401k. And you can retire on Social Security. You just probably can't retire where you presently live. And you're not going to retire on Social Security in Washington, D.C., not easily. And you may go to some place where housing prices are much lower. You may be able to squeeze some equity out of your house and use that. Exporting old people, I mean, there are communities in Mexico that are all Americans, and they can live there much cheaper than they can live in the United States. But that's probably not the best model. No, and the demographics on that are going to get even worse. I think there's room for creating a situation, as you described, where you're able to use people who have a lot of experience and can benefit from either being part of a team or leading a team and sort of helping to guide younger people upward. And it may be something that's actually vital in order to sort of help people get from retirement to that component of retirement where they're not really able to do that much. There's a long gap between when people are going to stop working and when they pass on. The wealth person in me struggles with that. And said, I don't know how these numbers add up. They don't. Yeah. That's probably a subject for another day. <laughs> for sure. Of sort of thinking about how retirement really works for the vast majority of people. I mean, for some people, obviously it will. Nobody's worrying about Bill Gates's retirement. There are many, many people who are going to find that they have a very different lifestyle. There's little question about that. And unfortunately, we started with colleges and now we've put people in their caskets. <laughs> Another piece of the college puzzle that we spent a good deal of time on that I think is an interesting one is the whole question of sports. So much of college is identified with the team, the mascot, the logo, the ranking, the football playoffs, top 10, all that sort of thing. And it extends across countless sports, some revenue, some not. And the thing that blew me away the other evening was to learn that virtually nothing that comes into the athletic department actually leaves the athletic department and becomes a part of the university's general budget. It all stays in its own bucket or virtually all of it. And it makes you wonder, what's the point? Why would you want to combine high-end research, acting in loco parentis for some number of people who may not be ready for it, and minor league sports. Would you buy that stock? I wouldn't. No, and I think I have sort of a bunch of different thoughts on that. The first one is from a revenue perspective, I mean, we're really only talking about men's football and men's basketball. The rest of them are subsidized by other, either by the state governments that fund the public universities or by the sort of tuition and endowments of the private institutions and then the TV deals around that. But we're talking about two sports here. And I think there's two dangers. Number one is for those athletic departments that are built off of football money in particular, I think we're reaching peak football where we are one death on the field away from a real issue here. I'm a gigantic football fan. We're, as we're taping now, we're avoiding me watching the Redskins lose, so I'm happy about that. But uh, <laughs> I think the money and the TV contracts are where they are. It's true that football really occupies 
I'd say one and a half days a week in the American psyche, but participation is dropping. And you talk to a bunch of different parents who have kids in the sort of grade school level and even high school level who are saying, you know what, they don't need CTE in their family. And you know, as Alzheimer's and brain conditions and so on are sort of proliferating, it's a scenario where I think football is going to become much less of a component than we think. The second part, which is, I think, an area that has had such massive change even in the last six months, frankly, even in the last month or so, is in the business model of these revenue sports. The example that drives me nuts about the NCAA was Jeremy Bloom. And he was most famous being Molly Bloom, the poker woman who ran all the poker games and Molly's game was done about her. He was her brother, but he was interesting in his own right because he was not only a top flight football player for Colorado, he was also a Olympic freestyle skier. He was banned from football because he took sponsorship to participate in the Olympics. I looked at that and I said, you got to be freaking kidding me. This is just such a ham-handed legal exercise to maintain power over this guy. He ended up getting drafted in the first round and I guess he had a perpetual pulled hamstring and never really did anything in the pros. But I looked at that and you sort of take that example and then you transpose that onto control of likeness, which is where the NCAA has started to buckle a little bit in terms of allowing people, especially in football, who really have such a short shelf life to be able to profit off of the likeness that they have. And I think that's the first crack in the dam, because eventually where I see it happening is in football and basketball, there's already sort of these concepts, but these guys want to get paid and they're not at these institutions to be student athletes at that level. There are many people who are, and it's a terrific opportunity for many people, but for the top guys, they're not. And ultimately the eyeballs that follow these two components they want to see the top people. I don't think we're that far away from a new, let's call it, emphasis on minor league sports. It's going to take a while, and there's some real vested interests there. But once you get a few of these major situations in place where big-time athletes just forego and they're able to do different things, if it's in, in basketball, they're able to play abroad now. In football, if there's a minor league that's willing to accept them or you can go play in Canada or something like that. After a while, if guys can do that for four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year while they still have their knees and you sort of compound that with the idea that they're retiring earlier, especially in football, so that they can form sentences later on in life. I don't know. I think there are cracks in the dam there and it could buckle faster than we think. It'd be very interesting to think for another podcast about there must be a business school studies on declining industries. And there must be, I can imagine a paper like managing in a declining industry and to see what the sort of business school type rules are for how do you manage in a declining industry and then turn around and say, is that what's happening in football? Is that what they're doing? Are they managing a declining industry? Either yes or no. But I mean, it's an interesting idea that you just treat it sort of like an extractive industry that I want to get the most money for the oil that I have in the ground and I'm going to only get so many more years of it and I'm going to get the most money out of it and then I'm going to go do something else. And if football has a fuse on it, then you want to not let the players have the benefit of their likeness. You want to treat them as badly as possible because your reputation probably doesn't really matter that much. If big time football were gone in 10 years, you wouldn't spend a lot of time on PR. 
Right. I mean, this sounds like Clayton Christensen when he was, I remember not remembering it real well, but he would talk about examples like Microsoft where they had all these different businesses that did really well and then they would go and innovate and create a better version of Excel and Office and things like that. And then they had all these things that were still making money. How do you manage around that? Or if you were the CEO of CompuServe or AOL sort of, and you had CDs that were getting people the internet, those things still exist. They have businesses around them, but they are declining. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I have no idea how you do it, but there is a certain amount of it. And I would prefer for the big money college sports model, I would like to see that decline faster than it likely will. Yeah, it's the branding for a lot of these institutions and it's why they're popular and it's why they attract admissions admissions at 50 bucks a throw and move up the rankings and sort of create sense that there's a sense of community out there beyond just the collegiate experience. But boy, it's an expensive way to do it. Yep. There's a huge cost on the soul. Well, I think too, there's a bit of a sugar high. I mean, my big example on something like that was UNLV, where they had a terrific hotel program. They're out in Nevada, but not much national notoriety. And they did sell their soul. They really did kind of develop a puppy mill as it relates to a college basketball program. And you had Jerry Tarkanian and all the good teams that they had there. But I would describe them as a semi-pro team. And they were able to get a nice pop. Frankly, even Duke did that a little bit. Now, they had a long storied history down in the Southeast. They had a good college football program. They had good college basketball up to a point. And then they hit a bit of a swoon. And then with Terry Sanford sort of with a national level public policy program, make no mistake, most Duke alumni are quite happy to be affiliated with it a lot of times because they have a, they have that college basketball team. And that when you're able to be in New York and in the public eye and on the cover of Sports Illustrated and et cetera, et cetera, day in and day out over and over again, that's a level of PR that Davidson can't buy. Yep. I certainly think that that's true. I suppose if it's what keeps the, the non-revenue sports going and makes it possible for hundreds of other athletes and other things that nobody's really going to pay to watch, if it makes it possible for them to participate, maybe you just bite your tongue and live with it. I was going to say, you bite the bullet and just say that's how the world works. But I think it is scary because the other sports are expensive too. And basketball, I don't really see receding anytime soon. But football, hmm. I don't know. I love the sport, but it's a different sport than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And the research around the medical issues, I think that could be the start of a big trend. Well, we've gone from pre-college to college. We've gotten back to sort of the implications of collegiate experiences with our seniors to sports and everything in between. I think this has been a great first foray here. Thank you very much. I love the conversation and I look forward to the terribly scary thing of hearing myself on the podcast, and I hope I'll recover from that. And the nice thing about doing something for the first time is you pretty much always get better at it after you've done it a few times. Well, no question about that, but I like the idea that we're focusing on topics as well above and beyond our day jobs. So Absolutely. A lot of truths come out of that. Anyway, thanks to everyone for listening. This is Fraser Rice and Haven Pell. You'll be able to find a bunch of different links on the topic on FraserRice.com and look forward to having you listen to us later on. Thanks again. Thanks very much, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast 
get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.